0: Alright, Philippians 3, we're in verse 17. And here, Paul writes to them, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes. Here he's saying, set your sights. Scopus, you know, just like a scope. Scope out those who live as we do. It's interesting because there's so many levels of discipleship and modeling that are mentioned just in this small little phrase right there because of course paul was what was ultimately modeling christ but paul was helped quite a bit by barnabas by ananias and so you see the levels of of followership or imitation that paul had in his life paul then has imitation in his life by others there in philippi and now those that have imitated paul most closely paul is now saying to the rest of the church keep your sights set on those people Because ultimately, what that all leads back to is Jesus. And it's in the perspective of what he has just been saying. That now, we now march forward. Yes, we've arrived, but we have more to go. And having arrived, and this is the, the previous verses that we've studied, we now keep on a direction towards Jesus Christ. We are continually being refined by the very Spirit of Christ... Into the very image of Christ. What an amazing life we have here. What significance. What new life. How astounding. Now he is trying to continue to shape. This very encouraging church. In that direction. So uh, onward we read. For as I have often told you before. And this is a bit of a warning here. And now tell you. Even with tears. Many live. As enemies of the cross. And walk. What- the NIV here keeps translating a certain word, live, Paul again and again has been using a word that's a kind of a, a bit more, let, let's call it uh, illustrative, or, uh, you know, a clear image, is that he's saying over and over again, walk as I walk, walk as those who imitate me walk, but be careful that you don't walk as the enemies of the cross walk. Their destiny, verse 19, is is destruction the word destiny there is the word teleos or the idea of their their end game their great end their great goal the overarching purpose of their lives ends up being destruction their god is their stomach and their glory is their shame their mind is set on earthly things but our citizenship it's in heaven And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. There's a lot in here. Let's get to work and being able to look at this. But a lot of this has to do with what's your great aim in life? and I love what Mark Twain once said. He said, the two most important days in your life are the day that you were born and the day you find out why. A couple weeks ago, as I had mentioned, we were up in Akron and helping with the planting of the church there, and as as we were um, with the Akron church, one of the things that we did is we went to the universities, and I spent some time at the University of Akron, and we were just kind of, you know, meeting people, and A lot of the the young people that I met, I would try to get a conversation going. But one of the things that I recognized is that a lot of them didn't actually have much of an intent of understanding Christ at all. And I I realize I can't just come from a perspective of, hey, what's going on with your relationship with Jesus? And would you like to come to our Bible study that's starting in a few moments? Uh, Because that would be as foreign a thought to most of the people that I met as as anything would have been. And so I, I had to begin somewhere else. And the question that I started to, to begin to ask is, I said, what is the overarching purpose that gives your life meaning? Gives your study meaning? Gives your work meaning? Gives your family meaning? And and, and as we would talk about that, you know, people know that they should have an answer to that question. And most of the people kind of danced around a little bit. And, and they would say, well, I guess it would be kind of what my you know, what, what my studies would be uh, in, in where I'm heading. I was like, no, actually what I'm asking you, what is the overarching purpose that gives your studies meaning? Is, is actually still what I'm asking you. Well, I guess it's ultimately to be my career. Right, and if you remember what I asked, well, what is the overarching purpose that is actually going to give your career path even meaning? And, and these were obviously folks that had their minds set on earthly things. And at best, they tried to make sense of a happy accident, of colliding molecules in a materialistic paradigm that is what made them understand all of the meaning of life. And Paul here speaks of people that don't have a transcendent purpose, something that is greater than really what is before your very eyes. Nothing greater than that. And Paul says, I I contemplate all of those people with tears. To know that the best that they can do is try to come up with some sort of a concoction of purposefulness. And, and that really, that was, that was me before I knew Christ at the age of 29. And, and for a lot of my 28th and 29th year, and I look back at my journals, and it's, it's rather embarrassing to look at my rather haughty thoughts and uh, all of my great plans and all of the ways that I was trying to give my life meaning. And I've mentioned this before, you guys, before. I, I'd have these 10-year plans and vision statements and mission statements, and believe it or not, to me, those two were very different things somehow in my narcissism. But 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 all of those statements were really nothing more than my narcissism wrapped in, in some sort of really contrived purposefulness, which really had a, a basis in, in nothing more than than ugly self-interest. And that's all that I had. And yes, I could shine it up. And yes, I could try to... You know, maybe sample a bit from Cicero or Socrates to make it seem a little bit more impressive in, in different ways. But at the end of the day, it all just rose and stood on nothing more than my own ego and my own delights. And, and it, it easily fell on itself as well. But having come to know Christ, oh my goodness, how all of that is not just eclipsed but but completely supplanted by something so significant and eternal and transcendent and deepened with really unshakable hope. Praise God for, for all of that. But Paul in this passage gives us the contrast of someone whose mind is set on earthly things versus someone who is a citizen of heaven and they know it. And, and so this will be the, the contrast that we look at today as we look at these two different mindsets. Now, I, I kind of jokingly have the neon sign there, eat here. If you're on Facebook, you're like, oh, I want to see the slide. There's not much to the slide, let me tell you. One, one picture says eat here, and the other is a neon sign saying Jesus coming soon. Yes, I know you're saying to yourself, wow, that's so clever. Good job in doing, putting that together. Thank you. Well, anyway, the, the, um, I, I, I also... I also put eat here because he says their God is their stomach. Yeah. But now the word for, for stomach, it, you know, many of the internal organs for you know, Greek words didn't just mean literally the stomach. For example, when, when it says that uh, Jesus is, uh, you know, was compassionate, it, it literally meant his, his spleen went out to you. Well, I mean, it didn't mean literally his spleen went out to him. Uh, and here you might look at the passage likewise and say, well, it is really their stomach, their God. But the word stomach was also the way of speaking of your emotions. So this could be a way of saying if your mind is set on earthly things, then what you really set to be your God is that you're really honestly you're led by your emotions. Rather than by 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 something so much more objective and divine, such as the great standard of the word of God. Uh, and, and if that being the case, then you, you're either someone that is kind of trying to craft this thing for yourself, trying to serve the, the emotions that are, that are guiding your life in so many different directions, and at the, at the same time, setting up great purposes for your life, not even realizing that those very things are going to be, ironically, your destruction rather than your deliverance. And so I want to first begin with the idea of this earthly mindset. And my first uh, point is, the overall sermon's uh, title was, Raise Your Sights. And the first point is, Sights Set Low. And to, to look at this again, this idea that your destiny is your destruction, that your God is your emotions, and your glory, your shame. These are all indicators of someone ...whose mind is set on earthly things. The way the Greek is, is arranged, that phrase, their minds set on earthly things, is the main clause. And then all of the other clauses kind of feed into that one. It's, it's attendant too. someone who is really just thinking about things from an earthly perspective only. When that's the case, whether you know it or not, you're an enemy of the cross. You're, you're led by your emotions. What you think is going to be a great purpose is going to be a great destruction. And what you think of as great glory, as shameful stuff. And for many of us, we know, we know maybe even not from too long ago, what it was to be someone with their mind set on earthly things and how true all of this is. Now, if you had asked me when I was 28 years old, are you an enemy of the cross? I'd say, how dare you? I love Jesus. Jesus. I, I, I don't know, I get to church now and again. Jesus is all, just alright by me, right? I, I mean, I was like, all, you know, if somebody said something against Jesus, of course I'd kind of, you know, jump in there and, and, and try to defend and, you know, do, do all of those sorts of things. But, but, but really, that was really just jive at the best in, in my life. And my sights were really set low. Jesus was not some sort of end in my life. Right? My, my end was, was based on self and self alone. And really, the, the great purposes of my life were in some way or another for me to personally have a better life. One of the things that I kind of try to ask people about to see whether their citizenship really is in heaven and their mind is set on things above. And By the way, what Elandus read from Colossians 2.20 to Colossians 3.4. That's an amazing passage. Jot it down in your notes if you happen to be taking notes. And, and look at that later because right, all of that plays right into this. A few weeks from now when we continue in the book of Colossians, we'll spend some good time in that passage. But nonetheless, going back to this, if, if your purposes are of your own design, well then it's really easy to indicate rather than your purposes are of Christ. They're really guided by the Bible. Just look at the big decisions in your life. And the the one that is going to give you let's say the biggest um indicator is for example when you're when you're graduating college why do you choose the college uh, when you're graduating high school rather why do you choose the college that you're going to go to I love asking college students that why did you choose ODU why are you here and then of course all the reasons are earthly textbook reasons well, be, be, you know, because they have a, a good oceanography program, because I wanted to pursue this degree, because I wanted to live near the beach and go to college. But it, it, it's all just like that. And even those that actually are even trying to live a Christian life, but it's at best kind of a half-hearted effort. No one among them has ever said to me, even among religious people, you know what? I, I really took a look at the landscape of, of what college had a great network. Both for me to be able to grow and be mentored and discipled, to really be refined in my walk with Christ. And at the same time, maybe be a good place where I could be used by Christ towards some really great end. Never have gotten that answer. Now, this is the encouraging part, is that these folks that are sitting right here, believe it or not, and and these folks that are kind of young and and, and graduated from college and that that have have made that decision, even Christine, as she was up here a moment ago, every one of them, every one of them, and as they're going on their college tours, because I hear of this again and again, and I've got them asking, calling me before they go ahead ahead of time, the number one criteria, I mean, whenever you do decision-making models in your head, you have salient criteria, and you have a deterministic criterion, right? And this is the veto power that wipes all this stuff out. It seemed more dramatic than it really was. And, all right, but, but, but you got all of this stuff over here, and then, and then you got this one over here, right? And, and all of these things is, you know, it, does it work with my major? Am I gonna make money when I get out of here? Uh, am I gonna get married? You know, all of these things are over here. But over here, th- this one, when, when I'm getting inside of their, their uh, decision-making process and their search criteria, this one is, is it going to be a healthful great place for me in Christ. That's number one, and if it isn't, then all of these don't even matter. And, and interesting, Longwood's a great college right here in Virginia, but we don't yet have, in our fellowship, a great campus ministry that's there. And so, guess what? Nobody even considers Longwood, even though in many cases, it plays right into their strengths. But it's not even a consideration. And for those Longwood alumni out of here, we're, we'll get there, you'll see. But. Uh, but isn't that interesting that it is not even in the realm of... Why? Because their citizenship is in heaven. Their mind is not set on earthly things. Why did you pick the job that you picked? Why did you end up living here in the place where you live? If it wasn't for a, a really intentional reason in Christ, then I got to put it to you then you did not do it because you ha- are a citizen of heaven, but because your mind is set on earthly things. Now, your mind may be set on earthly things for a variety of other ways, too. You might, might actually have your mind set on earthly things in your opinion of Christ. And we don't know all that Paul is talking about. And by the way, people who have studied this passage and have tried to get deep into the text and into the context and the uh, archaeological, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, uh, the cultural context of it, they don't really know. They don't really know who is the audience that Paul has in mind of these people. They know, by the way, because he says to them, I've told you before and I'm telling you again. So there's a long dialogue that perhaps has gone on between Paul and the Philippians about who these people are. The many who are going to live this way. And it may just be simply like Jesus said, many, I tell you, many, I tell you, will be on the broad path that leads to destruction. But only few are on the narrow road that leads to life. And it may just be that Paul is just reiterating that real truth that has, has been a reality ever since uh, Jesus began preaching on this very topic but the, the you may have a, an earthly view of Jesus on top of everything else and what would be an earthly view of Jesus Well, I, I hear this quite a bit oh Jesus yeah he you know, kind of mine beforehand I, you know I, I like Jesus you know, he, he seems to be kind and I you know I, I like the way that he you know, I don't know. Let children come to him. That seems kind of nice. Uh, I know, I like the way he made bread and wine. And didn't he walk on water? You know, there's some other thoughts that people might have. And of course, these cute little baby Jesus. You know, and uh, maybe it's Jesus in a tuxedo shirt. That, that's your Jesus view. I, you know, whatever it might be. But but you, know, you get this earthly view of Jesus uh, that's that's going on there. And but but the bottom line indicator that there's an earthly view of Jesus. Is that what you want to try to do to Jesus is defang and declaw him. And make him into just a good moral teacher. And Paul, with tears, would lament the idea that this is what you've done to my Jesus. My Jesus, who never gave you that possibility. Now, I'm going to come back to that one in a minute. But the other way that you might kind of have an earthly view of Jesus is you say, well, I like Jesus, but I think maybe he's just... maybe more of like a myth or a fable. And that maybe, even if there were no Jesus, we'd have to invent him. But we already have invented him, and so we've got what we've got. And probably, you know, how myths develop. That's probably how Jesus developed over time. Well, sadly, for your your hypothesis there, historians and history and historical documents don't allow you the option of saying that Jesus was a legend. We have from Pliny the Younger, from Josephus, from the Jewish Talmud. By the way, today is Rosh Hashanah, so Happy New Year to you. Uh, I'll talk about that later maybe if I have time. I probably won't. But uh, but, but all through those sources, uh, Tacitus, uh, also Lucius, they're all early, early historians in, who, who write of the history of Rome. And in all of them, Jesus figures prominently. So there is no chance the legend hypothesis has any traction based on any sort of actual intellectual inquiry that is honest. Only through laziness or dishonesty intellectually could you come to that conclusion. So, so now we've got Jesus. So we've got to deal with him. So was he just merely a good moral teacher from an earthly mindset? Jesus doesn't give you that option. If there's one thing that he won't allow to occur is for you to try to put him in that place. No one who is a good moral teacher would ever say the things that Jesus said. And he doesn't give you the ability to keep him in that place. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That's your good moral teacher. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. That's your good moral teacher. Now, that's what they say about Jesus, of course, in Acts. Jesus says, I am. I am the light. I am the way. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. Over and over again, these are not the words of a good moral teacher. They're either the rantings of a lunatic, or the deceptions of a liar, or the truth of a Lord. Yes. But those are your only opportunities. And in an earthliness, to try to create a new one is only done out of cowardice. Because you know, faced with the only real choices that the data about Jesus gives to you, you have to then give him one of the only logical conclusions. Either he is a liar, he's a lunatic, or he really is Lord. Amen. We don't have time to, to, by the way, he's Lord. I Keep that straight. <laughs> we, we, we don't have time in this text to be able to get to that place. But at least let me get you away from the place where you will so declaw him as to to put him in a place where no one has ever been allowed to put him. But which is, of course, in this age of tolerance and uh, subjectivism and relevance, uh, that, that, of course, that's a more popular thing to be able to do. And that way, hey, you know what? Your Jesus is good for you. And your enlightenment is good for you. And in your guru is good for you. Well, Jesus... Again, says, No one gets to the Father except through me. I am completely exclusive. And if it's not through me, there is no transcendent reality, there is no greater purpose, and there is no heaven for anyone. Now, is that rude and closed minded for him? He died for you. I think that's okay for him to be able to lay that out. He was tortured unjustly so that you would have beauty and hope and acceptance to a greater degree than you could ever begin to imagine. And for him to make sure that you're not deceived by some other cultural relevance that would get you into a different direction, I think is well within his purview to help you to realize, no, these are the limited choices. Make your choice right. But anyway, I think with with all of this in mind, as you look at what it is to have your mind set on earthly things, that if that does in any way begin to characterize you, then what Paul continues to say here is, then your destiny, your great teleos, the great meaning and significance of your life, as much as you may have crafted it well, as I did, in the end, you are actually orienting your life. Towards your own destruction. And the irony of it all. The more finely you hone it. The more clearly it's yours. The more clearly. It leads only to destruction. And. Your God. Is your emotions. And if this is not based on something transcendent. When you have a rough day. When you have a good day. It's going to lead you in ways that it should never lead you. The Philippian church of all churches here is a church that is getting beat down by persecution, a church that is in dire straits due to famine and poverty. And yet this church that Paul is writing to from his prison cell, where who knows what he's going through, they are both having a love joy fest one with another. Why? Because their emotions are not their God. Their God is Jesus and Jesus, despite all that was set before him in terms of of discouragement, humiliation, rejection by by all that he looked to serve and ultimately torture and death says for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. That's who their God is. The one who rose above emotions, that's who they imitate. And because they have such a surpassing purpose to their lives, they're not puffed up when they get the job promotion. And they're not devastated when they get the demotion. That's the beauty of a a life anchored in Christ rather than anchored in self, where it's your own best thoughts that try to get you to your end and sadly your emotions that really do dictate the the path and the really the level of of, uh, joy in your own life and and the the last part it says there is their glory is their shame and when paul ever talks about this it, it often is is talking about something that probably has to do with sin and, and by the way, if your mind is set on earthly things and Jesus is just merely a good moral teacher, one of the questions I often ask people when they say that is, I often say this, "Say, if that's the case, and if this is all there is, and that's your purpose, if you don't mind me asking you this, what do you do with your guilt? And that's often a, a time where, well, I don't really, I was like, really, so... I mean, if, if you were to, to, to lie to someone, that, that doesn't kind of, kind of get at you. Uh, if, if you were to be rude to someone, that, that doesn't somehow kind of come, come back your way, so, somehow or another. Uh, when, when you actually are, are, are so lustful and you objectify women, that in any way doesn't kind of seep in there. And, and if they say no, it's like, well, you know what? Sadly, congratulations. That's the profile of a sociopath. <laughs> So if you don't have guilt, you're either a sociopath or you're you're waiting for some sort of a manifestation of what's going on inside of you that's yet to pop out. What are you going to do with your guilt? Because what you think is glory, what I thought was glory. I knew when I woke up the next morning after my great feats of, of drunken bravery. I knew the next morning how I really felt. And what I thought was glory really was my shame. In Romans 6, Paul writes, What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. It's Romans 6.21. Ephesians 5, he says something uh, similar, 5.12. It's shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. Yep. Second Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 4:2. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception. Nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That's so true about Paul, and he does it right here in this passage. He says, look at me, and I'll talk about this in the next point for a minute, look at me and imitate me. That's a rarity in this day today. Because most religious leaders, and and you know, hopefully this is not going to fall on me in a minute, but... But anybody who is trying to purport to lead someone in Christ would probably be more comfortable saying, do as I say, rather than do as I do. But Paul is able to say with certainty, do as I do. And by the way, there's a whole cadre of other folks out there that are doing great as well because they imitate it and they're in the discipleship chain. Do as they do as well. And you'll do well to do as they do. Amazing, right? Uh, finally, let me read one more where, where he writes in this way. This is actually Jude. Um, Jude 13. They are the wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. They're wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Shame, destruction, a mindset on earthly things. Oh, I love Jesus. No, you're actually an enemy of the cross. And you've got nothing but emotions to really be your final God. God. To, to lead you at the end of the day. And really that is the issue. Most people who want to back off from Jesus really being Lord. It's not because they really do have difficult intellectual questions. About the historicity of Christ. It's because they got a girl that they got something going on with. And if they really make Jesus Lord. They got to rearrange what their emotions are all kind of riled up about right now. And yes you can, you can say well. I, there's a finer point of doctrine here that I'd really like to talk about. Sure there is. You know, there's a, there's a phrase that the, the, the last refuge for the scoundrel is patriotism. And the last refuge for the immoral is doctrine, right? Everybody wants to kind of talk about something else than, than really what's really going on in our lives and, and how it is that we're really doing. Uh, and let me make an appeal to you here. If, if you find in any way that this is what is, is more identifying you. That you've got at best your emotions as your guide. You've got at best your own intellect and your own best guesses and your own best deep thoughts about Jesus as who he is. Well, there's a Bible that's waiting for you to yeah. unfold a beautiful Jesus Christ that will melt your heart and really bring you love like you've never understood. Yes, along the way, you'll realize that you're more depraved and filthy than you ever could have imagined, but you're also more beautiful, loved, and accepted than you ever dared dreamed. And it's all waiting. And when you do, you set your set. you sight, sights set right. He's are for you to say, even that. Sights set right. And what is it that they have their sights set on? Well, he says their mind on earthly things but us. It's heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. The word that he uses there for citizenship is, is actually a, a rather interesting one. Uh, because that term, polituma, we know we get words like uh, polis, like Annapolis or Indianapolis. Uh, polis uh, could, could either denote a, a uh, kind of a, a civic area or a civic people. But sometimes it refers to a, a certain class of like... Well, servants, but kind of a privileged class because they're, they are the civil magistrates. So the polituma may serve as that. And so when Paul is saying, but, but you, Philippians, you are the polituma, you are that of heaven. Now, they're in Philippi, and Philippi would have regarded themselves as the polituma of Rome. They were a staunch and really admired Roman colony. And within their different circles, they generally were the Palatuma of Rome, but there were also those that were really committed to really keeping the colony solid and with Rome that, that would have been there. And interestingly, as they're receiving this letter from Paul in Rome, in chains, in shame, uh, likewise, all of Philippi would have been used to receiving a, a discourse from Rome in glory. And here they're receiving this discourse from Paul, in, again, written from a man with chains on his hands, And and to be able to realize, wow, what great direction we have from Rome right now. And the irony of it all is just so amazing in the backdrop of what's going on right now. But your citizenship is in heaven. And this is what we're all about. We're eagerly waiting for Jesus. And he's coming. He is coming to claim this colony. And when he does, all of this will be made new. God will come down and be with man and all recreated. And so we live our lives with our minds set in hopeful anticipation of the parousia. That's the Greek word for the return, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And by the way, by Paul saying, we await a Savior from there. You know who would have been referred to as the Savior in the that word Savior, Soter, would have been a reference to Caesar. That is one of the great appellations or one of the great attributions wow. to Caesar among the Philippians. And here it is being, and Paul doesn't use the word that much. You think he does, but he doesn't. He saves it for this letter in, to the Philippians because he knows what kind of a punch it's going to pack. And it packs a great punch. Because he's saying, your savior, Caesar, Caesar? what in the world? No, your savior, Jesus, Amen. Jesus. And by the way, Let me just say it one more time. As much as I've said it through the whole letter, as much as I've even said, every knee will bow and every tongue confess, Jesus is Lord. Why so much emphasis on that in this letter? Because it's a Roman colony. And the Roman test of patriotism, the checkpoint Charlie that everybody dreaded in Rome, would have been the checkpoint, are you a patriot? Well, then if you are, say the great phrase, Caesar is Lord. That was the temptation. If you did not say that... Bad things were coming your way. And, and, and maybe something rather difficult and persecuting. And so he says yet one more time. And who is Jesus? Your Lord. It's not Kaiser Correos, but Jesus Correos. And, and we await from our Savior from there, the Lord, Jesus Christ. Who, and then check this out. And some say this is another hymn, like back in 2, 5 through 11 who, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. So Jesus has got it going on right now. Jesus right now, as, as he is, is ready from the throne to come and, and bring it all back, has within him the power to bring everything under his control. The power to have every knee bow before him. And even if right now your mind is set on earthly things, Jesus, when he comes back, Has the power to make sure that your knee will bow. Now it will be an involuntary bow. And it will result in destruction. As he says. But that is his power. But what else is that power able to do? Transform our lowly bodies. So they will be like his heavenly glorious body. That's what he has the power to do. And that's what he's coming to do. And as he brings the Philippians into church. There's an interesting tradition that has arisen throughout church church architecture. I've I've mentioned it before. But I happened to be on uh, Apple Maps. And I thought well, let me just test this out. And see if it's true. I know I've looked at it a bunch of different times. but So I went on Apple Maps. And these are just screenshots from from my uh, iOS device. And in Germany. That's the Cologne Cathedral. And the... North-South orientation is just like it is on on the page there, right? So north is at the top, uh, east, of course, is to the right, uh, left to the west, and south to the bottom. That's the Cologne Cathedral. That's Westminster Cathedral. And then in the top right corner, that's St. Margaret's, right there in London, right along the Thames. And down at the bottom, that's St. Peter's Basilica, three of the more famous landmarks that are cathedrals. Now, this was the kind of the mindset of the architects of cathedrals. That the the building place of the church, it certainly is not the church, it's just the housing place of the church, let's at least use it to orient the church. What do you mean by orient? It means that you bring them in, and you have everyone enter from the west, and see, staring towards the east. Is that because Jerusalem is the east? Well, no. We could go to St. Basil's and see the same thing in Moscow's Red Square. We could go uh, to China and see, see similar uh, things. As a matter of fact, the earlier, earliest evidence of architecture in China was an oriented uh, church to show how early Christianity was in China. Why, why this orientation? It's because of this passage, Matthew twenty four twenty seven. For as lightning comes from the east, is visible even in the west. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Because this passage says that even though we're way in the West and you can see lightning way out in the East, that's what it's going to be like when the parousia is realized for all of us. So when we come into the assembly in these buildings, let's at least physically remind ourselves that we are being gathered together, reshaped and in unison, heading in the same anticipation of the glorious appearing of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. So all of these cathedrals and all of what really church is meant to do is bring us into unity as we await for the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. What Paul is telling the Philippians, this is why we've been gathered together. Because it's not just to keep on keeping on. There's an end game here. And our end is not our destruction. Our end is Jesus. He is going to appear just as as, as he went before. and And when he appears, holy smokes, Waiting to see what's going to happen then. And then, of course, we have so many passages that that, that speak about it. And and in essence, when He appears, He says here, our glorious, our lowly bodies, our humiliated bodies, is is really what He talks about here. Looking around. Uh, They will be like His glorious body. Now, this idea is, it's a very physical body, is the word here. When we're transformed, we still have physical bodies. This is not about Gnosticism. This is not about platonic dualism. Uh, God likes matter. He, he doesn't he, he created the world that it is good. God is going to bring about the recreation of all things. As a matter of fact, all creation, Romans 8, groans in anticipation of the return of Christ when he makes all things new. And when he does, paradise restored. Your bodies transformed. You'll have it going on. And it'll be delight after delight. Scenes of bliss forever new rise in succession to our view over and over again as we glory in the new creation and the culmination of all things. And at that time, Ephesians says, you'll know finally the fullness of the grace and the love of God. It'll all finally, you'll then be like, wow, I thought I knew grace. Now I realize, wow, how wow. kind. God was to us. Look at all that we have. And so we set our sights. And brothers and sisters, we have this, just as the Philippians do. We have this as the, the, the orientation and the significance of our lives. It is unparalleled in any sort of crafting of a purpose that you could have for your life. And you've got it. You've got significance. You've got hope. You've got new life. You've got redemption. You are not plagued by guilt. You are not plagued by doubt. You are given all of these things. And this is the great life that we have in Jesus. And why do we rejoice? Because we got all this. And what's coming is even more astounding. And so, as, as we kind of compare the kind of the two approaches of the way that you want to live your life, my goodness, I would imagine that God has put someone in your sight. As Paul said here. And I'm going to go ahead and kind of throw the gauntlet down here. Just as Paul was able to say to the Philippians. You know what? Go ahead and imitate me. And imitate the people that are around me. I'm going to say that too. I'm going to say you know what? Whoever it is here that God has put in your sight. To raise your expectations to be more like Jesus. You know what? Go ahead. And poke under the hood there. Because you know what you're going to find? You're not going to find hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. You're going to find sincerity of a life transformed from the inside out. And that's a value and that's a rarity. But it's here and it's gathered together. And so if you're here and you've got someone here that has helped raise your sights of what it is to really live like Christ. Well, here's my challenge. Don't let this work of the Holy Spirit. Don't let this passage just kind of fall to the ground or fade into the ether. But grab that person and set up some intentional time. So that what you know the Holy Spirit really wants you to go towards will actually be the case. Amen. Thank you.